evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are continuing our slow march through this very impactful, kind of all-encompassing letter from the Apostle Paul to a struggling little church in the Greek city of Corinth. And as we've seen most recently in chapter 8, Paul is answering a specific question that they asked to him about food that had been offered to a pagan idol. Can we eat this? Is that okay? And some brothers in their congregation, which we might call the stronger ones, the more mature ones, correctly believed that they were free in Christ to eat the idol meat. Others which we might call the weaker brothers, had serious concerns about eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol and serious concerns about the other people that were doing it. And so they asked Paul to weigh in. And significantly, Paul's instruction is relevant to us today, not because we have the same question about eating meat sacrificed at a pagan temple, but because we have a whole host of related issues. The issues that deal with ethical concerns not explicitly addressed in Scripture. These are the the gray areas, the secondary, maybe even tertiary issues. This is an area called Christian liberty or Christian freedom. It involves the conscience. And so Paul's argument was that although the stronger brothers were indeed correct that they could eat the idle meat, their sin came in in their lack of love. For their weaker brothers. They were exercising a genuine liberty, a genuine right of freedom in Christ, but they were doing it in a way that was not lovingly considering the weaker brothers and sisters in the flocks. And so in by doing, they were tempting the weaker brother to violate their own conscience, causing them to stumble, to become defiled, the text says. And so then we come to chapter 9, where It looks like Paul takes kind of a rabbit trail. He starts by defending his own status as an apostle. But upon closer inspection, what Paul does in chapter 9 is he takes the principles that he's laid out in chapter 8 and he applies them to himself. He's basically saying, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done. He's a good teacher. He's he's defending the legitimacy of his own rights, of his own freedoms, and then demonstrating how willingly he was willing to give up his own rights for the sake of the gospel and the sake of loving others well. That's really the thesis of tonight. We could go home now. But before we do that, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll go a little bit deeper. Hear the word of our Lord. Am I not free... Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along, belong a, a, a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Or does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the words uh, of Peter when when asked, is he going to go away too? Where else shall we go? You have the words of life. We come to you asking that you would speak, that you would be near by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would illumine these texts of Scripture, that you would remove the the sinful distractions, the blinders of sin over our eyes, that we might rightly see and apply your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I plan tonight to just slowly work through this text to explain what Paul is saying, and try and make some observations along the way, a few applications. This passage is laying some foundations that will be built upon in subsequent sermons. And so some of the things that that we will look at tonight might not be fully unpacked until later sermons, but let's begin looking at verse 1, where Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Paul starts off this chapter defending his own apostleship, his status as a true apostle. He was one of the few people that the Lord had specifically revealed himself to and whom was specifically commissioned by Christ and inspired by the same. It's worth noting that this apostolic status is not a repeatable one. There are some people, even today, just as there were in Paul's day, who fancied themselves to be apostles. You can watch on TV or listen on the radio to Apostle so-and-so, who's always happy to receive funds from you. But that's just plain wrong. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Nobody today has such credentials. Further, these apostles were commissioned by Christ. Not everyone who witnessed 
the resurrected Lord was automatically an apostle. They had to be called, commissioned into such a role. Further, the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak and to write the Word of God. They were tasked with speaking God's truth on God's behalf. They were witnesses. They were commissioned and they were inspired. That's what makes an apostle. We can look at Acts 22 and see these three marks laid out in Paul's own history. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But in Acts 22, starting in verse 12, we hear about Paul's conversion. It says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light shone from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. There's the eyewitness part. Skipping down to verse 12, and one named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. It's inspiration. And to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him, that's his commissioning, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so Paul is, a, is an eyewitness who was inspired with divine knowledge and insight and was commissioned by God to go serve the church in a very special way. And so going back to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul starts this chapter with a string of rhetorical questions, at least 16 of them by my count. And he starts with, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Am I not an eyewitness? He's, he's asking them, am I not in possession of these rights myself? Well, of course, is the implied answer. Of course he has these rights. And he moves on, the end of verse 1 into verse 2, talking about the fruit of his ministry, again, confirming his apostleship. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm an apostle, not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's saying, doesn't my ministry demonstrate the validity of my claim that I'm an apostle? Of all people, you, the Corinthians, should be able to testify to the legitimacy of my status as an apostle because you yourselves are the proof. You're the seal of my apostleship. You testify to the rightfulness of my ministry. You verify my status. Others had come into Corinth claiming to be apostles and they sought to undermine Paul's status as an apostle. But all he had to do was to point back to the Corinthians and say, you are the evidence of my claim. So that's what he does. It takes us to verse 3 where he says, this is my defense. This is my apology, my apologia. His defense of his rights to those who would examine me. He's starting to build his case for his own rights as an apostle. And what are these rights? What is it that he's saying he deserves or he has claim to? Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and to drink? So most simply, Paul is teaching that he has the right to, to maintenance, to, to, to earn a living, to be compensated for his status and work and his 
ministerial capacity as an apostle. To take the principles from chapter 8, he is the stronger brother who has a legitimate freedom, a legitimate right to maintenance. And that right is not only his, it extends to others. Look at verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? There are a lot of little things in this verse. As a side note, notice how it totally contradicts some things that the Roman Catholic Church says. Roman Catholic Church will tell you that celibacy, taking a vow to never marry and to remain chaste for all of life is necessary for a, for a pastor, for a priest, for popes for that matter. That's not what Paul says here. While we're on the topic of Roman Catholicism, notice Paul's language there of the brothers of the Lord at the end of verse 5. Jesus had brothers. Mary had other children. You can go other places in the Gospels and see that. Matthew 12, Mark 3. Unlike what the Roman Catholic Church claims about the perpetual virginity of Mary, Paul was under no such illusion. Indeed, Paul here defends his right and the right of other apostles to take along a wife in their ministerial work. Forced celibacy is extra-biblical, indeed unbiblical, and it brings unnecessary temptation for a man of God. Further, Paul knew that it is of great gain for a man, specifically a man of God, to have his wife serving alongside him. She's a helpmate fit for him and aids him in his work. Paul and Peter and Barnabas could marry a believing woman and be greatly served, greatly aided in their ministry to the churches because of the presence of their wife. And if Paul chose to do so, would not his wife also deserve the care of the church? That's his point here. That's where we can get to some application for us. God calls men to be set apart as preachers and teachers, pastors and churches. He calls them to be missionaries and evangelists to serve the body of Christ around the world. And these men ought to be compensated for their work whenever a congregation can do that. Not all congregations can. Some can't fully support. But where the means are available, the men ought to be compensated and should be supported well enough that their wife, and by extension their family, is cared for. I'm exceedingly grateful for a congregation that's able and willing to give generously so that I can care for my family and devote my time and energy to the work of the Lord. I'm not forced to go get a second job and limit the amount of time and study and prayer and preparation for preaching. And that's to the benefit of the body. We're all called to give generously so that the church of God can be nourished by men who have time and energy devoted to the word of God and to prayer. And conversely, we have to be on guard against the temptation to neglect such a duty. For in doing so, we not only neglect the quality of the pastoral work done among us, to our own detriment, but we also contradict the clear will of the Lord, as we will soon see. But moving on to verse 6, Paul points out that the Corinthian church had apparently already extended such right to maintenance, to compensation, to others. He says, verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to 
refrain from working for a living? We'll see again in a minute that the Corinthians were apparently willing to give others such a right. Maybe it was Apollos mentioned earlier. Maybe it was another not named in this letter. But his question asked, does this right not also extend to me? And the implied answer is, of course it does. Of course it should. Now starting in verse 7, we get to Paul's explanation of why. Why does he have this right? And we'll see first that he possesses these rights because they're consistent with expectations. They're consistent with what we would expect. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? And who tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? He starts with a soldier, a mercenary. Would that mercenary come work? Would he be hired for no pay? Well, of course not. Neither does the vineyard owner plant a vineyard not to partake of some of the produce. Neither does a shepherd work to not get a taste of the fruit of his shepherding, the milk. And thus, Paul would say it's the same with the minister of God. He's laboring, and it's consistent with the expectations that he would receive fruit from that. These are the genuine rights of Paul. But he goes further, starting in verse 8. He says these rights are consistent with the law. They're consistent with the law. Do I say these things on human authority? Or does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox? That God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul here is quoting Deuteronomy. About not muzzling an ox who is in the business of treading out grain. The same passage is quoted in 1 Timothy as well. In a passage expressing similar rights of compensation. He asks another rhetorical question at the end of verse 9. Does God write this because he's concerned about the ox? Well, he is concerned about the ox, but his point is larger than that. He's saying it for our sake. The point is that if God is concerned about an ox, a big dumb animal getting its due, would it not apply even more in this case? The case of labors commissioned by the Lord himself. Of course it would. The plowman plows with hope of sharing in the fruit of his labor, and the thresher threshes in the hope of sharing in the reward. And Paul has the right to plow in the field of ministry, and he also has a right to share in the reaping of that field. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 12, we see Paul's rights are consistent with their practice. His rights are consistent with their practice. I mentioned this above, so we won't linger long, but he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. If the other apostles, who aren't fathers to you in the faith like I am, if they have this right, and you're giving it to them, would it not also come to me? Well, of course it would, Paul. It should. Of course it should. Now, we'll... We'll keep moving and we'll come back to the second half of verse 12 in a minute. But look at verse 13 and we'll see Paul's next argument that his rights are consistent with custom. His rights are consistent with the customs. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. The temple workers, both in the Old 
Testament temple and in the pagan temples in Corinth were compensated and fed in part by their work in the temple. The Levitical priests were not given an inheritance in the land of Canaan like the rest of the tribes were. They didn't have a place to go, a physical plot of land to go and earn their living off the land. Rather, they were expected to be cared for by the people that they were serving in the temple. In fact, in the Old Testament, whenever the priests are forced to go out and feed themselves off of the land, we see the people of God in very bad shape because the worship of the Lord in the temple was being neglected and the priests were forced to go and find food elsewhere. The same could be true today. There are There are churches not not giving to the work of God in a generous way and forcing a man of God to go get another job to make ends meet for he and his family. Not all bivocational pastors are in this same boat. Some are serving the Lord very faithfully where they are. But when a pastor is forced to be bivocational because of the stinginess and greed of God's people, that's a terrible mark against the church. I pray that none of us gets into such a mindset of failing to be generous with our money. Because it it often comes because some sort of disagreement. Some difference of opinion, some matter of preference that, that they're at odds with the church leadership on. Some try to do that. They, they don't like some decision, they don't like the direction of the pastors or of the deacons, and so they try and exert leverage by withholding their giving. That's a dangerous place to be. If a man of God is of proper character, of upstanding character, like the qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3, then why would we not be generous to him, trusting that he would be wise enough with the money to be generous and hospitable to others? If we don't trust him to spend his money wisely, then we ought not trust him with the care of our souls. It's not the job of the sheep to keep a shepherd humble by keeping him in rags. And it's to the sheep's own detriment to try and do so. But enough on that. Let's keep moving. Paul's argued that his rights are consistent with the expectations, with the law, with their practices, with custom. Now let's see Paul's rights are also consistent with the Lord's own teaching. Paul's rights are consistent with the Lord's own teaching. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul says his rights are legitimate because the Lord ordained the principle. He doesn't say, if he's referring to Jesus' instruction to the 70 that Jesus sent out in Luke 10, or some other unrecorded teaching that Jesus gave, Maybe he said it between his resurrection and his ascension. Maybe he said it some other time. In any case, Jesus himself personally taught this, and so the Corinthians who would deny Paul the right of maintenance would deny the explicit teaching of Jesus. And so there is Paul's defense, his apology for his right to maintenance. And a few comments about the implied responsibilities for us in churches today. But let's move on and look at the rest of the passage and see Paul's example for us. Paul's example for us. This will be a theme throughout the subsequent sermons, but his example for us is clear. 
If you look back at verse 12, at the latter half of verse 12, we see Paul say this, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Similarly, look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. This introduces Paul's theme that will run through the remainder of this chapter, indeed into chapter 10. This theme is a clear willingness from Paul to forsake legitimate rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. He says he's willingly foregoing his right to compensation so that the gospel will not be hindered. He was a tent maker by trade and would do that on occasion to earn money so that he would not be a burden to the churches and so that nobody could make any accusations upon him. Nobody could say Paul was in it for the money. His gospel was able to remain unhindered by any such accusations. And that's a high bar. That's a high bar for a preacher myself. Do I feel so firm in my calling that I would do this job of preaching to the flock if you could not pay me? Absolutely. If a man would not stay faithful in his calling, in the absence of money, he needs to question his calling. But for all of us, how willing am I to forego my legitimate rights so that others would be unable to tarnish my gospel? How quick am I to forsake my legitimate rights for the sake of loving other people well? That's a question for us. Are we so thankful to God for the grace of forgiveness found in Christ that we would be willing to let go of our rights if it served to love others well? To speed the gospel along? If I'm honest, I don't like to do that. I don't like to think about that. I like my freedom. I like my rights. This is one part that's can be confusing, can be hard living in America where everybody talks about rights all the time. We got a bill of them. I like having my just due. I like my liberty. I don't like it when somebody tries to impinge upon my freedom. When they do that, when somebody starts to limit my freedom and I feel constrained, I like to push back. I use the Bible to justify. Don't bind my conscience. Don't do that to me. I like to clamor and demand and argue for my freedom and my righteousness. But that's usually not the way. That's not what we're called to do. It's very me-centered. My rights, my freedom. It's not what Christ did. You thought about Christ and His rights? Christ had the right to life more than any person who has ever lived. It was his right by birth and by merit. And yet, what did he do? 
He didn't demand his rights. He didn't argue for his freedoms while he was hanging up there. Even though those freedoms were true and legitimate and they were, they were his to claim. In fact, he didn't even open his mouth. Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. Because he loved his people with a perfect love, he was our supreme example of laying down rights for the good of another. And because he was silent about his rights, we can be forgiven for demanding ours. Because he was willing to forego legitimate freedoms, we can have true freedom. Because his mouth was silent, we can be forgiven of opening ours sinfully. That's the gospel. That's, that's the good news that so transformed Paul, that was so motivating Paul, that he'd be willing to suffer greatly for the good of the people of God and for the spread of the gospel. I hope you know this gospel. I hope you believe in it. I hope you know this Savior. Because if you do, you too have been forgiven. You've been forgiven of your selfishness. You've been forgiven of your pride. You've been forgiven of thoughtlessly demanding your rights to the detriment and neglect of others. But if you haven't trusted in this Christ, then you need to know on the basis of Scripture that you have earned something for yourself. You've earned for yourself a right. By your unbelief. But that right is not freedom. You are guaranteed the right to eternal punishment and death for your sin. You will have the right of an eternity in hell tasting of your right to judgment because you selfishly demanded your rights and freedoms in this life. You would not submit to the yoke of Christ and so your demanding of freedom has enslaved you to sin and earned you a right of death. And so I plead with you on the basis of Scripture, come to Christ and He will grant you true and legitimate freedom. He will grant you a right, a new right, a right to eternal life, a right that cannot be taken from you. A right that is yours only in Christ Jesus. Those who are united to Christ by faith have a right, a claim to heaven as strong and as legitimate as Christ's own claim of it. This right of eternal life is demonstrated to us in another way as well. This is a, a God-given right to life that's found only in the work of Jesus. And we see it clearly pictured in the Lord's table. His body was broken and His shed blood, which are the only means of the remission of our sins, is pictured at the Lord's table, which we have the joy of celebrating tonight. This table is a birthright given to all who have been born again. 
All who have been liberated by Jesus from sin and death and who are trusting in Christ alone for the atonement of their sin. This table is for those who are following in obedience to Christ like the disciples mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Devoted to the, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer. If that describes you, then join us at this table. It is your right in Christ. But if that is not you, if you're not walking in repentance and following Jesus in faith, then let these plates pass. Be first reconciled to Christ and to His church and then join us at the table. I will pray and then our table servants will come. Father in heaven, we thank You for Christ who is our great example and our great substitute. That even though we demand and we clamor and we cling, Lord, He was silent like a lamb before His shears. He did not open His mouth even though it was His right to. His love for His bride compelled Him to remain silent in the face of awful pain and terror. Father, we thank you for this sacrifice. Lord, we pray that you would use this time, use this table, use the elements, the bread and the cup to build up your body. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our table servants will come. Take your elements, hold on to them, and then we'll partake all together at the end.